Please turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We uh, come back to Romans after a few weeks away and want to look this morning at verses 7 through 12. And uh, we just continue to, um, to march through this, uh, this incredible letter. I think I said the last time we were in Romans or as we came to the end of chapter 6 that I I kind of wish we could go back and start over. I just find I'm, I mean, I'm just learning and myself growing and understanding. And I'm just, um, I'm all caught up, I guess, in this. And somehow uh, on these Sunday mornings, I'm simply by uh, God's mercy and grace, just trying to, to get over in the foolishness of preaching what it is that God has for us here. And so we're at Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7 and reading through verse 12. So join me as I read this passage. And I remind you as we read this together that this is God's word. This, this is his word. It is for you as people. He gives it for your well-being. He gives it to comfort, to encourage, yes, to convict, most certainly, but ultimately so that we might find our comfort and our encouragement in Jesus. So hear this, his word. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please do come and help us. Uh, Help us. Help us to understand that this word is every bit your word, as were the words that you spoke to your 12 disciples and to larger groups of 70 and more and even larger groups of thousands. Uh, Lord, you spoke to them and being anointed by your spirit, your word had power in their lives. And may we, as we come to this word, understand that this is your word. And would you grant the same empowering and enabling spirit that we might come to terms with it? It's hard, Jesus. This is a hard word. So come with all of your great mercy and compassion by the power of your spirit and help us to take this in. Help us to learn from it but especially help us to be changed by it. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You'll notice something striking about this uh, verse 
beginning at verse 7, or about this passage beginning at verse 7, you'll see, uh, if, you're, if you're you know, just even a little bit paying attention, you'll see that, that in verse 7, and really for the rest of this whole passage, there's a significant thing that's happened. Um, in this passage, Paul gets personal. He's no longer talking uh, theologically or theoretically or uh, in some sense abstractly. He's no longer speaking generally. He begins to speak personally. Notice the number of times in these verses and then in the verses that follow it, beginning at verse 13, how many times the first person singular pronoun appears. I, 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 I. See, this, this gospel thing is, this is not a theoretical thing for this man. It is an intensely personal thing for this man. Uh, and I'll just share this with you. I'll, I'll just mention to you, um, just in case you're interested, uh, who it is that I read each week as I get ready for this stuff on Sunday morning. Um, I read dead people. I listen to the voices of dead people. Um, I read John Murray, who has written probably the, uh, the most um, highly respected commentary of the 20th century written. Um, I read John Calvin, dead longer than John Murray. Okay. I read Charles Hodge, who kind of lived in between them, Calvin, Hodge, Murray. Uh, I read uh, some other people as well. I, I read uh, Sandy and Headlam, two different guys who were early 20th century folks. And I mention all of this to you because these folks are all in agreement that Paul is not writing in the abstract when he shifts to this personal pronoun. Now, there are some people who think that he is uh, shifting and just uh, from speaking sort of generally using the per- first person a pronoun that he's, he's still speaking generally, but he's trying to make it personal. I'm not one of those who subscribes to that. I think when he gets to verse 7 in these following verses, he's talking about himself. He's writing personally. He's talking about his own experience. He's talking about what happened to him. And what he's doing, yet again, as you come to verse 7, is answering questions. He's been doing that throughout this letter. If you go back and read from the very beginning uh, of Romans, and I I encourage you to do that. I keep encouraging you to do this, uh, that you keep reading and rereading Romans, that you immerse yourself in it um, and keep living with it, reading it, rereading it. If you go back uh, to the early chapters of Romans, you'll see Paul constantly asking questions. But here, when he asks this question, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. He answers the question by referring to himself personally. He's got a dog in this hunt. He's got a stake in this gospel. It means something to him personally. So as we come to this, let me just give you three pegs, as is frequently the case. Let me give you three pegs to hang this text on, um, and it'll, it'll help us to get current with what's going on in Romans chapter 7, to ask these three questions, these three pegs upon which to hang this particular text. Here's the first. Why all of these questions? Why is he constantly asking questions? 
as he writes this letter. That's the first. Why all of these questions? Second, why this particular question in verse 7? Why is he asking this particular question? What shall we say? That the law is sin? And then third, what is the role of the law? What is the role of the law? Why do we, every month at this church, pray through the Ten Commandments? Why do we do that? What is the role of the law? Okay, so three things. Why all of these questions? Why this particular question? And what is the role of the law? Why all of these questions? Well, the answer, in general terms, is simply this. Paul has been preaching this gospel, the gospel that he's writing here in Romans. He's been preaching this gospel for over 25 years. He started preaching this gospel maybe in the first hours, but certainly in the first days after his Damascus Road experience when he was knocked off his horse, when he then went into Damascus, And this fellow Ananias came to him who was terrified at the prospect of going to visit Paul because he knew Paul's reputation. He knew that Paul was an antagonist. He knew that he was persecuting the church. He knew that he was in Damascus to find Christian believers to take them back to Jerusalem so that they might be tried and suffer the same fate that Stephen had suffered. Acts chapter 7, stoned to death because of blasphemy. Ananias knew that that's why Paul was in Damascus, but Ananias came to him and spoke the gospel to him, and the scales covering Paul's eyes, you'll remember, fell off, and he was baptized, and he got up, and he took nourishment. And if you read Acts chapter 9, you read the narrative of Paul's conversion, immediately Paul went into the synagogue, the synagogue in Damascus, and began arguing for the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Son of God. He started doing it immediately. And he's been doing it for 25 years. And over the course of those 25 years, I would suggest to you, particularly through the first 13 years of his Christian life, his understanding of that gospel was refined, increasingly refined. And his ability to communicate that gospel to particular audiences was particularly um, clear and cogent as a result of years and years and years of practice. He knew his audience, he knew the gospel, and he knew how to get the gospel over to a particular audience. And in the course of that growth, he would get questions from people. He'd get questions. Where was he preaching the gospel? If you read Acts again, he would go to synagogues. Who do you find in synagogues? You find Jews in synagogues. You preach that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's going to raise questions. And so he's been preaching that. He's been preaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as he preaches that Christ is the Son of the living God, he also preaches what would have been startling, would have been upsetting, would have been completely counter to everything that the Jews in those synagogues believed. And that is simply this. Here is how a person is put back in right relationship with the living God, with the holy God. 
Here is how a person is reconciled to this God. Here is how a person is justified, that is declared innocent and declared positively righteous in the presence of a God who is holy. This is how it happens. It happens because of the free grace of God received by faith apart from works of the law. How is a person a Christian? How is a person put permanently, permanently back into relationship with the holy God from whom he or she is alienated because of sin? Totally, entirely, completely as an expression of God's love by his free grace received by faith apart from works of the law. That's what Paul preached. And so as Paul preaches this, people, what are they going to say? These are Jews. They're immersed in the law. The law is what distinguishes them from the rest of the nations. They have Moses. They have the Ten Commandments. They have the explication of those Ten Commandments, touching every area of religious life and civil life. Touching every area of life, in fact. I've told you this story, I think, maybe not. Story of my youngest daughter who's reading through the Bible. I came into her room late at night. She was asleep. The Bible was on her lap. Her chin was on her chest. When I came in the door, I startled her. She woke up. Her eyes opened. She looked at me. She looked down at her Bible. She looked up at me again, and she said, Oh, the molds, the molds. I'm finally finished with the molds. What was she? she was in numbers. She was reading numbers, which deals with molds. Mold on the inside of your wall. Mold on the outside of your house. Mold here, mold there. I mean, this law touched every aspect of life. Do you ever think about molds? Right? Some of you do, because you're allergic to molds. God thought about everything. And the thing that distinguished and differentiated Israel from all the nations of the earth is that they had this law. And Paul is saying that it is apart from works of the law. It is apart from any code of conduct. It's apart from any ethical norms. It's apart from all of that that a person is put back in right relationship with God. It is as a result of his free grace received by faith apart from works of the law. So what is the natural question that Jews are going to raise? What's the thing they're going to say? This Paul is not a Jew. He's a heretic. He's overthrowing the traditions of our fathers. He's overthrowing the law. He's setting aside the commandments. That's exactly the charge that hounded him, that Paul didn't care about the law, that the law didn't matter. And if you read through Romans, throughout the course of this letter, as people raise questions, as he anticipates people raising questions as he writes this letter, you will see that so many of those questions are raised in connection with the law. To Romans chapter 3, verse 31. 
after Paul has talked about the seriousness of sin. And by the way, you you just can't escape. You know, maybe Paul's neurotic. Maybe he's overly scrupulous. Maybe he's got a problem, you know, a psychological problem. Maybe he has low self-esteem. No, that's really not it. What Paul understands is that God is holy and that he is not. And that just raises a huge, huge problem for him, just as it did for Luther 16 centuries later. When you get to Romans chapter 3, after Paul has talked about the problem of sin and after Paul has talked about the pervasiveness of it, that it extends both to Jew and to Gentile, that nobody is exempted, that Jews, in fact, this is verse 9 of chapter 3, Jews are not any better off with respect to sin. We all together are under sin, just as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. And then at the end of chapter 3, he goes through this glorious explanation that this densely compacted paragraph in which he shows us what the gospel is, that it is Jesus doing for us what we're powerless to do for ourselves. And he comes to the end of that in verse 31, and he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. You see, he's expecting people to say, Paul, if it's by grace, received through faith, apart from works of the law, you're overthrowing the law. You're saying the law doesn't matter. And he's saying, no, think with me again. It actually matters quite a lot. And if anybody is upholding the law, I'm the one who's upholding the law. How? Well, let me tell you. And I'm summarizing. I'm paraphrasing. But here is how Paul would answer that. How am I upholding the law? Paul would say in this way. In this way, God has given me a substitute. You know, we we say this rightly. We look at the cross. You look at that cross that is behind me. And you know that that cross is a symbol, a reminder to you of the fact that the Father has given his Son to be your substitute, taking your sin from you, carrying it to the cross, suffering the wrath of God in your place so that your sin is dealt with. Do you remember last week I said, write this down, take this away with you. God does not forgive sins. God does not forgive sins. God punishes sins so that he can forgive sinners. Sin is dealt with at the cross. And we know that Christ is our substitute at the cross. And that is, in effect, upholding the law. That is vindicating the law. That is saying the law matters so much. And the violation of it matters so much that a God of inexpressible love would give his son to bear wrath as he bore the sins of his people on that cross that they might be free of the threat of wrath, the threat of condemnation, the threat of judgment. That's upholding the law. But you see, before Jesus even gets to the cross, He's your substitute in another respect. 
He is your substitute in keeping the law in its entirety. You see? He keeps the law fully and completely. Not only the externals of the law, but the internals of the law. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read Jesus as Jesus gives explanation of the law. You see, adultery isn't just the physical act of sexual relationships outside of the context of marriage. Murder isn't just putting a knife through somebody's eye. Adultery and murder extend beyond the surface, deep into the heart, extend to lust, extend even, in the case of murder, to calling someone raka, calling someone fool. Jesus kept the law, not just touching the externals, but touching the internals, the motivations, the heart inclinations, where the violations of the law are conceived and then germinate and grow and ultimately find expression in the things that we say and the things that we do. It starts on the inside. And every moment of every day, Jesus loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his might. He loved his Father as your substitute because you haven't. I haven't. We haven't. One of the reasons this passage, chapter 7, one of the reasons that Paul shifts from speaking generally to speaking personally, as I hope to show you in a few minutes, is because he himself was acutely, acutely aware of the depth of his own sin. I said this in my inquirer's class. I think I've said it here before. I want to say it again. Don't listen to, don't trust any preacher of the gospel who does not repeatedly demonstrate his own need of the gospel he preaches. That's what Paul is doing. He's writing to these Romans. He's saying, this isn't about you people. This is about me. Just as he did when he wrote the Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which we all once walked about fulfilling the passions of the flesh. He includes himself. This isn't an abstraction for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knows the depth of his need. And he understands that long before Jesus went to the cross, he upheld the law, he fulfilled the law, he satisfied the demands of the law in perfect righteousness so that he could go to the cross and uphold the justice of the law as the Father visited his wrath upon his beloved Son as a substitute for all who would trust in him. You see, Paul would say to to legalists, to Pharisees, to those who have a moral code, to those who think that, that because they keep the moral code, they're doing pretty well. Paul would say, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your moral code is. If we talk long enough, here's what I will show you. I will show you that you, in your moral code, actually have the, the effect 
of diminishing the significance of the law, of lowering the standard. It is the gospel that upholds the full integrity of the law in Jesus' obedience and in Jesus experiencing God's righteous, just wrath as a sin-bearing substitute. That's the gospel. That's at the core of it. That's why Paul can say, isn't it? When you get to chapter 5 and and then again in chapter 8, that's why Paul can say, there is now peace between us. Why? How is there peace between you? You live with yourself. I live with myself. How can there be peace between me and a holy and righteous God? I have a substitute. I have a substitute. One who is fully satisfied all the demands of the law by his obedience. One who has satisfied the justice of the law by his death. I come under that and there is peace between me and God. I come under that and there is no longer the threat of condemnation. And my conscience can be at rest. And throughout this letter, as Paul raises these questions, again, note how many times these questions have to do with the law. It's because constantly he was being challenged. Paul, you're setting aside the law. Paul, righteousness doesn't matter. Paul, if you keep preaching this, people are going to go do exactly what they want. We need laws, Paul. We need rules, Paul. We need to constrain people. We need to prevent people. We need to organize people into little groups of moral midgets. That's what we need. And so many points in this letter and so many times along the way, Paul says, in effect, laws can't help. The law cannot accomplish what the law requires. Because the more laws you make, the more evidence that there is of lawlessness. So why all of these questions? Because Paul is trying to get through again and again and again this idea that right standing before God is the gift of God's free grace received by faith apart from the works of the law. Why this particular question? The second thing, why this particular question? It's because of what Paul says in verse 7. I'm sorry, in verse 5 of chapter 7. Look at what he says. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He's responding in verse 7 to that particular misunderstanding that comes from the assertion that it is actually law that stirs up and provokes us to sin. And so people are concluding that law and sin are sort of in a partnership, which they are. But because they are in a partnership, knowing that sin is sinful, it must be the case that law is sinful as well. Okay, if law stirs up passions, if law together with sinful passions bear fruit for death, There must be something defective about law. There must be something wrong with law. Law itself must be sinful. Is that what you're saying, Paul? 
And he answers it the way he always answers these questions. By no means. Or may it never be. Or God forbid. Or here's my rough paraphrase. Are you kidding? You must be nuts. Verse 12, he says, the law is holy and righteous and good. It is holy. That it is, that, that is, it reflects the very being and character of God. It is righteous. That is, it is perfect in everything that it requires, everything that it demands. There's nothing untoward about it. There's nothing inappropriate about it. It is right. And it is good. The law is good. You want to get along well in the world? Let me suggest to you, you get along better in the world if you keep the law. Because the law is good. It actually promotes life. It doesn't rob us of life. It promotes life. You know, the problem is not with the law. Where's the problem? The problem occurs when sin and law come in contact with each other. And that's the point that the apostle is making. As I said before, no matter how many laws you make, they can't help you. In fact, what more laws do is expose more sin. It just works that way. Not because there's something defective in law, but because there's something defective in me. When righteous law comes into contact with unrighteous hearts, problems emerge. Right? Remember the park bench? Remember the park bench? Who knew the park bench was there until somebody put a sign on it that said, Don't touch wet paint. Who knew that the grass was there? next to the sidewalk until somebody stuck a sign in the ground that said, stay off the grass. Have you ever had to teach a child to be disobedient? Anybody here had a child? You had to teach to be disobedient? Anybody here had the experience of saying to a child, don't touch that, don't do that? And had that child stare you squarely in the face and extend the hand and touch the very thing you have said not to touch. Make as many laws as you want. Make it as tight as you can. Build the fences as high as you can. Put them on solid and deep foundations underneath the fences. What will people do? Think about the Mexican border. They'll dig tunnels. They'll dig tunnels. Now, Paul is saying the problem is not with the law. The law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is me. The problem is my heart. So how does the law work? What is the role of the law? Let me give you the principle. If you haven't experienced it, let me give you the principle. Simply put, the law works not to save me. The law works to expose me. The law works to expose me. The law works to show me what I really am, not externally as we said, 
but deep in our souls, deep in our hearts. The law is like one of those walk-through microwaves that they're sticking in airports all over the country. You walk through that microwave, that life-size, human-size microwave. That's what it is, you know. It's that kind of a technology. If somebody flips the wrong switch, it doesn't just expose you, it fries you. It's an x-ray machine. And what does it do? Why do we have those things in our airports? Because we can't see past the surface. They can pat you down. They can use the wand. They can do stuff. And people can still hide illegal and dangerous things on their persons. And so why do we walk through these microwaves to expose what can't be seen by the naked eye? And that's what the law does, friends. But believe me and trust me when I say this, when the law does this work to expose me, when the law does this work to show me what I really am, the law is not doing this to crush me. It's not doing this so that I might be arrested, arraigned, tried, and jailed. The law is doing this so that I might be helped. The law is diagnostic. And here is where Paul shifts his emphasis from the general to the very personal and specific. He uses himself as the example. And he says, if I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what it is to covet. If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known what it is to covet. Now, this is a tricky passage, and what Paul is doing here is something that's kind of difficult to follow. So I'm going to try to help us understand what he's doing by using the illustration of the rich young man. Paul talks about coveting here. What is coveting? Coveting is a heart sin. Coveting is an internal thing. You can cover over it. People can't see it, but the law can see it. The law can expose what is deep within us. And that's what happened with the rich young ruler. And I'm going to invite you to engage with me in just a little bit of sanctified speculation. And I'm going to suggest to you that the rich young ruler is the Apostle Paul himself. I can't prove this for sure, but I will tell you the more I think about it, the more I reflect upon it, the more I reflect the timing Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler is near the end of his ministry. It's in Luke 18, it's in Matthew 19, it's in Mark 10, it's in the three synoptics. It's near the end of his life and ministry. It's not long before he goes into Jerusalem. It's very clear that Paul was in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost and shortly after when Stephen gave his defense because when Stephen died, they took Stephen's garments and at whose feet were those garments laid? The feet of the Apostle Paul. 
the timing, six months, eight months, ten months, from the time of this encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler and the time of Stephen's martyrdom, and not long after that, the time of Paul's conversion. I have to think it all happens within about 12 months. There are three reasons that I want to suggest to you that this rich young ruler may in fact have been the Apostle Paul. I want to use Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 10 is the text from which to think about this. Mark 10, 17, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, the journey that takes him up to Jerusalem, a man ran up to him, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, see, we're not there, so we don't see the exchange. We don't see the eye contact. We don't see the body language. But we know that Jesus knows things about people that people don't even know about themselves. Jesus exposes the things that are in people's hearts. He is the incarnate Son of God. He has power and ability and insight that other people don't have. And isn't it stunning to you how absolutely rifle-shot-like the responses of Jesus are to particular inquiries? They seem to be designed for particular people. It's because Jesus knows them. Man runs up, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And what does the rich young man say? Teacher, I've done all of this from my youth. I've done all of this. Now think about what Paul says in Galatians and think about what he says in Philippians. In Galatians he says, I was exceeding my countrymen in my zeal for the traditions of the fathers. Think about what he says in Philippians chapter 3 as he lists and enumerates all of his credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. I've kept all of this from my youth up. I've been a good boy. And Jesus' response, if I could steal the paraphrase from one of the commentators, Jesus' response is basically this. Well then, since you've kept the law from your youth up, it won't be a problem for you to sell everything that you own and give it to the poor and come and follow me. You get it? He's taking him at his word. You've kept the law. You've fulfilled the law. If that's the case, then it's no sweat for you to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And don't ask all the questions about whether the poor are going to be good stewards of this largesse. Just sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And what is the response of the rich young man? He's devastated. He's crushed. Do you see what's happening here? Here he is. He is in the, he is in the presence of the incarnation 
of perfect righteousness. He is looking someone squarely in the face. He sees and he knows that this person has kept the law perfectly. And in the presence of perfect righteousness, what is exposed is his perfect unrighteousness, his covetousness. He went away sad. Why? Because his heart was attached to his wealth. His God was his wealth. He was a coveter. And his sin was exposed. Paul was a legalist, but in chapter 7 of Romans, he tells us he wasn't just a legalist. He tells us he was a coveter. His Achilles heel was coveting. And it became a huge problem for him. And I want to suggest to you, again, I'm asking you to engage with me in some sanctified speculation. I'm going to suggest to you that at that moment, beginning at that moment, the Apostle Paul began to struggle with his own conscience. And by the time Paul is in the presence of Stephen, his conscience is so deeply troubled and so deeply enraged that he is complicit and participating in the execution of a symbol of faithfulness and righteousness. When my sin begins to be exposed, what's the first thing I want to do? Retaliate. I want to kill whatever it is that exposes the truth about me. But here's the third thing. Paul sees himself as he writes this passage in Romans chapter 7. He sees himself, he knows himself, that he is a legalist, that he's self-righteous, that he was complacent, that he was content in his righteousness, and then something begins to happen and it begins to trouble him, and somehow something goes right to the core of his being and exposes his covetousness, his godlessness, his idolatry. And he is exposed. But here's the third thing. The third reason that I really do think that this rich young ruler may have been the Apostle Paul. Matthew tells us that the man was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. But Mark's gospel tells us that when Jesus looked at him, he loved him. He loved him. How did Mark know that? How did Mark know that Jesus loved him? He knew it because he was there to witness it. He was there to see it. He was there to see the compassion on the face of Jesus as this rich young man turned and walked away from him, bearing the weight of his own sin. Jesus loved him. And here's what I want to suggest to you. That when Mark and Paul traveled together as they did, they talked about it. I just, it is not hard for me to imagine. Mark on a boat someplace with Paul 
tramping down some dusty road in Turkey, Mark saying to Paul, remember? Remember when you came to Jesus? What was that like for you? And if Paul didn't say it on that dusty road or on that boat, I believe he would say it now. What happened when I encountered Jesus, whether it was as it's described in Mark chapter 10 or on the road to Damascus, wherever it was, whatever it was, what I got from Jesus was the last thing I expected. Because in my worldview, when the law exposes you, it crushes you with judgment. But what I got from Jesus was not crushing judgment. I got compassion. I got his love. How do you account for the fact that Paul, exceeding all of his brethren in righteousness, would become in his latter days one who assessed himself as the chief of sinners. It can only be that when he encountered perfect righteousness, rather than experiencing wrath and judgment, he experienced love and compassion. And here's the, here's the point. It is only, it is only as the law exposes the true depth of my need that I begin to see the greatness of the love of Jesus. And so the law, exposing me as it does, is not my enemy. It is in fact my diagnostic friend helping me to see the truth about myself so to, so to turn me in the direction of a compassionate, loving, forgiving Savior. Don't fear the law. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, whether it happened that way or not, It is true in the life of every one of us that as you reveal the truth about us, you don't withdraw from us, but you actually extend your arms and invite us to receive your embrace as a loving, forgiving, compassionate Savior. Oh God, help us all as more and more of the depth of our need is exposed to turn to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.